Uh, if you are our guest, we're thrilled that you are, are with us. My name is Dean. I'm the lead pastor here. But regardless of whether today is day one, 101, or 1001, right? Whether you're in the room, you're watching online, we're grateful that you are joining us today in our last message in the series that we are calling uh, New, where we're looking at the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And the reason for the title in the series, right, is that's where we've been headed. Really, we pointed everything to today. This day where we study how God is making all things new. And so we've said every week that the revelation is more about present hope. It's more about you and I today, just like it was for the original hearers of seven churches in Asia Minor. More about the hope that they needed in their day. It's more about present hope than it is necessarily about a future calendar. Um, think about it like whenever a screenwriter is submitting to a production company. The first thing that he submits is the storyline, right? And if the production company likes the storyline, they respond back, and then he writes the script. Revelation is more a storyline of hope than it is a script of future events, a calendar, a linear timeline. And I understand that we're human beings, and we want a timeline. We want to know what is going to happen next because we know, right, what's last on the timeline. If God doesn't return uh, first, you know, the death rate is 100%, right? Every one out of one person, people uh, is going gonna, is gonna to die. We know that. We understand that. And so because that's in our future, it makes us wonder, well, what's after that? What, what happens uh, beyond that? And that's why death is, you know, it's the subject of poetry and books uh, and songs Whenever my kids were little, for some reason, I don't know what happened to me. Maybe I was just a little too young, but I missed the Johnny Cash era of music. And so when, for some reason, whenever I was in my mid-30s, I found Johnny Cash. And I started listening to Johnny Cash all the time, which was great. Until my three-year-old daughter walked into the kitchen one day singing, I shot a man in Wino just to watch him die. Right? And yet, death feels like, right, it feels like this alien intrusion into how things ought to be. And that's actually very true. It's, it's, it's a reality uh, for us. We want to know what's going to happen at the end. What does death, does it have the last word? And one of the great things about the ending of Revelation is that we don't have to wonder about that. Because what we learn is that it doesn't, that God is the one who has um, God is the one who has the final word, and we want to know that. We're, uh, it, it's kind of built in, right? It's built into us. How many of you, whenever you get, let's say you get into a fight or a spat or whatever you call it uh, with somebody, how many of you struggle to not have the last word? Yeah. Two of us, me and this guy right here, the rest of you are lying. <laughs> Just going to change the sermon. We're going to talk about something, something else, right? Right? You, we want to know who has the final word. And Revelation 21 and 22, they're going to help us understand that death does not, that the enemy does not, that God is the one, right? The one that we sang about, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shema, right? Jehovah Jireh. He is the one who has the final word because we all want to know what, what is heaven going to be like? What is eternity what is it going to be like? And Revelation gives us the most complete description of eternal heaven. And that's important because there's a lot of myths out there about what heaven's going to be like and what's going to happen. And you listen to other religions. And there's one uh, religion in America that's very popular that says whenever you die, if you're a man, um, you get a whole planet with a certain number of virgins and you get to populate the whole planet, right? Which is great. 
if you're a guy. But if you're a gal, I mean, you get to be pregnant eternally, perpetually pregnant, stretch marks and nausea forever uh, for you. Amen, right? Amen. That's not what the scripture teaches us. It's going to be the reality of heaven. There are four things that we're going to see uh, that make heaven unique. And the first of those is that heaven is a healing place. One of the reasons that we long for heaven so much, one of the reasons that the older you get, the more you want to go, is because of the pain and the difficult circumstances that we face in this world. But in the other R book in the New Testament, Romans, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he said, but I'm, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the, the painful realities of this world, he says, the sufferings of this present time do not compare with the beauty in the age to come. In other words, the good about heaven is so good that the bad about this world, you think about war and famine and diabetes and broken relationships. He says the good about heaven is so good that the bad that we experience, it, it won't even, it'll be a distant memory compared to what we have. Heaven is a, is a healing place. Listen to these words. Revelation chapter 21, verse 16 says uh, this. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And I just want to pause right there and say, I think John just gave us the measurement of an angel. If I, if I read this correctly, at least in his vision. He says that an angel is 144 cubits tall. Now, in our world, you translate that to something we had. It's about 216 feet. And to give you a comparable for that, when you walk past the walls at Ohio Stadium, they're about 166 feet tall. John says, at least in his vision, the angels in his vision are 25% taller than the walls that surround Ohio Stadium. I don't know what that does for you, but these are the angels that God dispatches from heaven to not only protect and guard his glory, but at times, at moments, during seasons. These are the same angels that God dispatches to protect you. Suddenly I feel a little better about things, I don't know. He says this, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. And just listen to these, just listen to these jewels, right? The jasper, he says, their second is sapphire, the third is agate, the fourth emerald, and onyx, and carnelian, and chrysolite, and beryl, and topaz, and chrysophase, and jacinth, and amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Heaven is not only a healing place, heaven is a beautiful place. The reason that you and I care about color and decor and texture and aesthetic is because we are image bearers of God. The reason that you care about fashion, or your, I think the young kids call it your drip, the reason you care about your drip or the reason you care about your fit, right, is because we are image bearers of God, because God is creating a beautiful 
a beautiful place. One of the interesting things about the text here is that the ratios that John gives us, the ratios of width and height and um, of the dimensions of heaven, exactly match the ratios of the dimensions of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And you remember the Holy of Holies, only one person, the high priest, could go in one time per year into the presence of God to represent the sins of the people back to God to offer sacrifices for our sins. But the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that Jesus, our high priest, entered one time for all time into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice for all sins, your sins, my sins, such that when Jesus was on the cross, the veil of the temple, right, was torn in two. The Holy of Holies is no longer guarded. And the way that John talks to us about heaven is that you and I go from not being allowed into the Holy of Holies to Jesus giving us access to the presence of God, to eternal heaven is God. We're living 24-7 in the Holy of Holies. You can do the math um, on your own, right? Don't, don't trust don't trust my math. I went to public school in Southern Ohio. But if I added it up correctly, it is 3.34 billion cubic miles in John's vision of heaven. It is a, it's a beautiful place. But one of the things that sticks out about heaven is that in the middle of all of, these, uh, all of this jewelry and Streets of gold and pure glass and it, all of that. There's a garden. Look at uh, chapter 22, verse 1. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city and on either side of the river. The tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, no longer Will there be anything cursed? But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. It's interesting as we learn about heaven in chapter, uh, chapters 21 and 22 that these verses say that what was taken away in the Garden of Eden has been brought back in the midst of the Garden of Heaven. Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, they choose to sin, they eat the fruit, um, uh, that the serpent offered them, and they are taken away from the tree of life. And because of the sin of Adam and Eve, sin was passed down to all men, and not just all men, you and me, people are born flawed, are born into this world with this, this curse of sin, but even creation was cursed. Not now. Now the tree of life is brought back in eternal heaven, and it's yielding its fruit. It's fruit for the healing of the nations. And what we see is that the things that are taken away in the garden are now brought back. They're restored in eternal heaven. Now you remember that back in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve had responsibilities. The world, the earth wasn't cursed. There wasn't a curse in, in the relationships, the brokenness that we experience among people. Can you imagine what it would be like for work to work with you, right? Instead of working against you. And I believe that the scripture hints to this over and over and over again, that when we get to heaven, like we're not just going to sit around, right? And people ask me, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to be bored. I guarantee you are not going to be bored in heaven. I think we're going to have responsibilities like Adam and Eve had in the garden. I think if you'd like to lead things, you'd like to build things, I think those are going to be your opportunities. Your gifts, talents, and abilities are going to be used to their greatest degree, I believe, throughout 
all eternity. One hint towards that is Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus is he's telling, he's sharing this parable. At the end of the parable, he says, listen, you've been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler, right? The scriptures say that we're going to be co-regent, co-reigning, co-ruling with, with Christ. He said, I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your master. I believe in heaven will be the fulfillment of all that we could have been, would have been, and should have been here if we were not flawed and broken, um, if we were not flawed and broken by sin. But that's not, um, that's not the only things, right, that are there. That's not the only things that we learn um, about heaven because we understand that in heaven being this kind of healing place, we want to know, like, okay, how does that work? Because the reality is, you probably would say to me right now, Dean, this is great that it's beautiful and it's restored and all that, but how does that help me now? I'm not there now. How does, how does, what difference does this make to me? In Revelation chapter 21, you look back at verse 4, it says this, and he, he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Heaven is a hopeful place. H-O-P-E-F-U-L-L. It is full of hope. And all the things, you know, it's been called, heaven's been called the land of no more. No more cancer, no more ALS, no more divorces, no more fighting with your children or fighting with your parents or fighting with your siblings. No more broken relationships, no more difficulties um, in the, the, the goals, the realities that you're trying to build towards at work or at school or in the realities that you're trying to bring to bear um, in other people's lives. No more, no more terrorists, uh, no, more, uh, no more political wrangling. No more, I mean, it's the, it's the land of no more where everything is as it should be. And these verses say, for all of us who have gone through incredible difficulty, there's no more genocide, there's no more abuse, there's no more sex trafficking, because God is going to wipe away every single tear. So the difficulty for us, I think, in that is, as believers, if you are a Christian, Part of this commission that you and I have been given by our Heavenly Father is to bring heavenly realities into today's context. Most of us probably know or have heard, you could probably quote the Lord's Prayer. Part of the Lord's Prayer is this, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth, how? as it is in heaven. So we're bringing the way that things work in heaven right now, we're bringing those realities to bear in the world that we live in. That world is not flawed. This world is flawed. So what does that mean? That means that you and I are going to find ourselves at times at odds with the way world systems work. There are going to be times where our values as believers conflict contrast and collide with the values of the world that we live in. And while that is difficult, and while the moments when those, those things occur are difficult, that clash, you and I are built for it. 
as believers, we are supposed to bring those realities to bear. And the good news for you and me is that we have an incredible model, right? Jesus came, Jesus did the very same thing, and the scriptures say that he was full of grace and truth. We've talked about this a number of times, not 50% grace and 50% truth. He was 100% grace and 100% truth. So we as believers, we can hold both of those things in tension. We can say to people, I disagree with you and I love you that those two things don't have to be um, opposites of one another. Those two things, um, they don't have to be exclusive. And I think we've got a moment like that in front of us culturally right now in our state. November election is around the corner. Issue one um, is in front of us. It's a referendum um, on abortion, right, in, in our state. And for us as believers, we have to discern what are the scriptures say. I'm, I'm never going to tell you how to vote because I believe that is part of the process of your sanctification, your study of the scriptures, and your relationship um, with the Father. And at the same time, I've said this to you before, I'll say it again, I believe that the scriptures clearly support a pro-life position. Chapters like Psalm 139, um, passages like Luke chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses that say that God knits us together in our mother's womb. Got verses that say God knows us in our mother's womb. I think the scriptures clearly support that position, that pro-life position. And so what that means is that when we come into moments like this and we get frustrated and we get angry and there's all this emotion on both sides of the aisle, we have been uniquely given the Spirit of God, right, to say this is what truth says and to do that in the context of, of being loving. And I feel like, you know, you're already, you're already hearing um, a lot of the rhetoric that's coming alongside of this, that we need to put people's reproductive decisions in their hands. This law would allow for late-term abortions without parental consent, all the way up to birth. So the only way that we could say yes to a reality like that is that we would have to deny a child agency. A child that could be born a day from now, an hour from now, or a minute from now. We have to say to that child, you don't have a voice. Because we can't hear your voice, you don't have, you don't have a voice. We'd have to deny that child agency to yield agency. And what you're going to hear is that you're either, you're either pro-women or you're pro-life. That's a false narrative. God is both. God is the creator of both. And God loves both. I was a day one voter. I voted 10 days ago, 11 days ago, whenever, whenever that was, walked into the Delaware County Board of Elections, voted in less than five minutes. But I think it's incumbent upon us as believers, whenever we walk into these moments, these seasons, um, for lack of a better way to say it, these, these arguments, we are full of grace and truth. So as a church, what are we doing? If we say, okay, here, hey, we support a pro-life, but what are, we, what are we doing? We support the Stowe Mission of Central Ohio, downtown Columbus, and their Crisis Pregnancy Center, Pregnancy Decision Health Centers of Delaware County. We support them. They give away counseling um, to young moms and young dads. They give away resources, diapers, uh, wipes, formula, wherever they can to help young moms and young dads in these decisions and in these, and in these seasons. 
We've been blessed um, over the past couple of years um, to have a life group, a bridge group uh, that meets here that helps people who have made abortive decisions in the past to walk through that and healing. Because listen, the gospel, the gospel's rea- the reality is that none of us is better than any of us. That it takes just as much of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to save me as it does to save anybody else. It takes just as much of the sacrifice of Jesus to save you as it does to save anybody else. And all of us could have found ourselves in places and spaces in the world where maybe we would have made a certain kind um, of decision. And the good news about Jesus, right, is that he is full of grace and truth. So we can love people, not label people. We can love people and we can say, this is what I think that the, the scriptures clearly teach. The good news about heaven is that God wipes away. This will not be part of heaven. It is the land of no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. And you're like, well, okay, Dean, that's great about what is not there. But the best thing about heaven is not what is not there. The best thing about heaven is what is there. Chapter 21, verse 22 says this, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb. The ultimate difference about heaven, what is going to make heaven incredibly great, is that Jesus is there and that we get to see him face to face. Now, a lot of us have questions about what about the people that I love, the people that died um, before, before me? What about them? I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul makes the argument there that there's going to be this this reunion. So the people who have died before you who are in Christ, and if you are in Christ and you go to heaven, you will be reunited. And I've got that um, that same passion and penchant to see the people. I can't wait to see my mom. Right When I go to heaven, I can't wait to see my grandparents uh, whenever I go to heaven. But the real reason that we are going to heaven, right? the primary reason is that heaven is life with God. That we get to see the one who died for us and see him face to face. And that's really important for us to consider when we think about heaven. Because that means that there is nowhere in heaven that God is not. He's everywhere. Now, that reality, there's a theological reality that we call omnipresence. And what that means is that God is everywhere all the time. So today, right now, God is omnipresent. He's with you everywhere you go. But we struggle, we fight that reality to to understand that, to live in the presence of God all the time because of our flawed brokenness and sin. But in eternity, that brokenness and sin is gone, right? So we will be present, we will be ultimately present in the reality of God and understand that we are in his presence all the time. That's important because somehow we have been taught that heaven, there's a place in heaven that's kind of like God's HQ, right? That's kind of like God's headquarters. Like you can go see God whenever you want to go see God when you're in heaven. But the reality is God is present everywhere all the time. Why is that such a big deal? Because there's nowhere in heaven you can go to get away from the presence of God. There's nowhere to run for a quickie sin. There's nowhere to run for a little bit of gossip. There's nowhere to run to, you know, live out that little anger fantasy that you have. There's nowhere that you can go to uh, work a backroom deal, right, in, in heaven. Like you, there's nowhere to go for any of that. So why is that such a, so important? Because if you and I aren't the kind of people 
who like living in the presence of God here. Why would you want to go to heaven? If you don't enjoy the presence of God and the relationship with God that you have here, and you're like, wait a minute, Dean, eternal life starts when I die, right? No. Jesus is clear in John 14 and John 15. This is life eternal, that they might know you and the only true God. Excuse me, John 17, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life starts when you begin a relationship with God. Eternal life starts now. So if you aren't the kind of person who enjoys spending time with God here and now, does heaven even really make sense for you? And you're thinking, absolutely. Absolutely, I want to go. But a lot of us want to go to heaven because we don't want the alternative. Right? Let's do a show of hands. Right? Everybody... Put your hand out like that. Everybody who wants to go to heaven, raise your hand. Where do the rest of you want to go? What is wrong with the rest of you? Right? Okay. Now get your hand ready. We're going in. Everybody who wants to go to heaven right now, raise your hand. A lot, very few, right? There's a lot fewer of us on that second. Why? So yeah, we want to go, but there are certain things here, people we love, things that we think we want to do. There are, there when the reality is our hope is in heaven. I, I think the struggle for a lot of us is this. Yeah, we want to go to heaven, and we, we know, we see, we understand that not everybody's going to go to heaven. So yeah, I want to go. But Dean, could you just tell me what the minimum entrance requirements are? <laughs> right? Like, how much do I have to believe What's the least amount that I have to, to change, to be transformed? Like, do I have to come to church like two times a month or three times a month, like to click those things off? Can you just give me the minimum entrance requirements? But you and I both know you cannot base love relationships on minimum requirements. That's impossible. Um, if you were around uh, last week or if you watched the message online, um, I showed the proposal video whenever I proposed to Angie, right, to, uh, to marry me. By the way, thanks for all the encouraging things that you said to me um, about that proposal. But what if I would have followed that up with, I would have gone, I said, listen, honey, uh, Angie, I'm, I'm excited about us getting married. But what I really need to know is, like, what are the minimum requirements for you and me to stay married, like to, to make this thing work. Because, you know, I've got these couple of girlfriends from high school that I'm still interested in every now and then. And, like, I think that about would be okay. You probably got some old boyfriends, right, that you, which would not be okay. But, you know, there's kind of a, like, we can make this work. Like, like what's the minimum amount of the number of nights you need me home? Like, how many hours are we talking here? Like, what are the, what's the fewest number of times I can say I love you, right? And this is still going to work out Love relationships are, cannot be based on minimum requirements. Not to mention the fact that we have a God who did the very maximum for us. 
who left heaven, came to earth, went and died and died. Not just a death, but even the death of the cross. The scriptures say he was tortured, beaten, broken to prove. The scriptures say that God displayed his love. He didn't just tell us he loved us. He displayed, he put his love on full display in that what? Christ died. We have a God who did the maximum. And you and I as human beings would approach him and say, okay, God, I just, just let me know what the, what the smallest. Listen, here's what God wants from you. Everything. Everything. And if you're not willing to give him everything, it's just not going to work. And you're going to say back to me, you're going to say, well, Dean, I don't know everything. I don't know everything in the Bible. I don't know. That's not how it works. That's legalism. That's not a relationship. You come to God because God first came to you. And out of that, you say that your allegiance to me demands my allegiance to you. And whatever you say, for, for my life, God, I believe that's for my best. I trust you because who else would do for me what you have done for me? And when that becomes your heart, that becomes your, your attitude. These are the last words of your organized Bible. Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John's response, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. John says, Come on. Come on, Jesus. We're ready. That now, Jesus, right now, now's the time. Today's the day. Come on. Until that day, grace be with you all. But if we could just skip the grace part, right? If we could just get straight to the face-to-face -face part, the desire of the heart of John the Apostle was, let's go. <laughs> let's fire it up and let's go now. And the heart Every Christian who is in right relationship with God is the mirror and the match that you and I, which, can you imagine a world where everybody says, Jesus is king? Where the rule of the day is the ethic of Christianity, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Where that is the norm of the day. Where people say Jesus is king. That's what it's going to be. And the beginning of that, because that relationship begins here, God gave churches an ordinance. Ordinance is called baptism. Where people publicly go into, they, they represent the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus going down into the water, coming out of the water as a representation of the old person going in and the new person coming out. It's symbolic and representative, but I'll boil all that down and say this. It's a group of people who said, you know what? I've come to Jesus. I want everyone to know Jesus is king. And so I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and we're going to have the blessing of seeing people today baptized. This this public representation that they have been made new. They're stepping into this, this made new reality today in hopes of what someday will be. And they're coming from all kinds of places and spaces. 
Older folks, younger folks, people who've been invested in by their parents, people who've been invested in by our leaders and students and LifePoint kids and school teachers, uh, people who are walking away from patterns of addiction out of years and years and years of that. All of them saying, Jesus is king. And it just doesn't have to be for them. That same reality can be true in your life as well. Let's pray. Lord, this present hope that you have granted to us because of both your finished work on the cross and, God, what we believe and see about the future, that if, if what we've seen, what we've hoped for, what we've experienced in the cross is right and real, that means that our future, God, is secure. And so, God, today we lean into that and we say, along with these folks who are coming to be baptized, that you Jesus, our King. And so, Lord, will you help us to live today in light of what will be one day. You, Jehovah Shammah, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Jireh, the names, God, that represent so much of what you want to do in our lives. We sing glory and honor and power, and we sing Christ, that you would be magnified. We sing that you, God, are our firm foundation. And God, we are grateful for all of the things that will not be in eternity. But we are more grateful. Dear God, we are more grateful that we will get to see you, to know you fully as we are known face-to-face. Thank you for the opportunity to experience baptism this morning, to walk alongside of these folks. God, and what you are doing through your spirit in their lives, it's in your name we pray. Amen.